It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, January 29th. I'm Desiree Frazier. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, a resolution recently passed the Mississippi House that could overhaul the state's ballot initiative process. Then, many conservative lawmakers want to cut taxes again this year, but research shows it could hurt the state's future. Plus, a new book tells the story of Oxford, Mississippi, and the unique people who helped shape it. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Many voters and activists have called on lawmakers to reinstate the ballot initiative process. A resolution passed the House chamber, and it is called HCR 11. The resolution would prevent voters from filing any initiative relating to abortion, the public employee's retirement system, or funding allocations. The measure must also pass the Senate and be approved by voters before it could go into effect as an amendment to the state constitution. Matt Steffi is a professor of law at the Mississippi College School of Law. He tells our Will Stribling, if this resolution were to be passed, it would create one of the most narrow and restrictive initiative processes in the country. The differences are profound. Uh, They are fundamental. They show a distrust of voters and a dislike for the idea of sharing power, which presently is all within the conservative Republican supermajority in the legislature, the uh, almost exclusively white conservative Republican supermajority. And I think these dynamics matter because this is such an ineffectual and onerous proposal that it seems more politics or public relations than actually restoring the initiative process. For starters, it allows citizens to go through a very expensive and involved process, go to the polls and enact legislation, not constitutional amendments. And that is a difference that means everything, because that law will stay in effect for two years and only remains in effect thereafter if the legislature decides to let it stay in place. So it allows the people to enact the law a very temporary law uh, that's ultimately uh, under the legislature's sovereignty, approval, and discretion. 
So it, it's hard to imagine it being worse what is an exceptionally burdensome process. Why do you think they you know, included this abortion uh, restriction on it? They are somewhere between afraid and contemptuous of their own voters is the only conclusion one can draw. I mean, this is so burdensome and ineffectual that it can only, it, it seems like, if not pretext, close to it. You know, that will allow you to suggest a law temporarily. So if you go through an extraordinarily expensive and burdensome process to do so, prevail decisively at the polls, don't cost us any money, and leave certain pet subjects like abortion behind. Uh, because this is politics. This is just normal party politics. This is a PR stunt more than a return, a matter of principle. Because I suspect most legislators would tell you they believe in people, their judgment, their wisdom, that they are servants of the people, that they believe that the people should have the final voice, but they are absolutely committed at this stage of things not to give them any real power, not to share any real power. The easiest thing in the world to do would be to, to pass a law that just makes a tiny change to the previous system, adjust the technical issue of the number of uh, congressional districts. But this goes far beyond that. If this version of a restore pro- process were to go into law, how different is it from the, these processes in other states that, that, that have ballot initiatives? Is it, is it more onerous? Our old process was more onerous, and this is more onerous still. So, yes, it's more onerous, more limited, more more cynical. Yeah, and I want to talk more about the spending provision because that seems like it would be more uh, extremely restrictive in what people could do because, say, you know, using the medical marijuana program, for example, that was something like the establishment of a medical marijuana program would cost money. So is there like it yeah. seems like it would just – Eliminate on its face most things that could motivate voter, voters or groups to the extent to go through this lengthy and onerous process. Absolutely, which I'm sure is it's designed to do. You know, make no mistake, it is not an accident that the court invalidated after over 20 years this is an initiative process when the issue was medical marijuana. If it had been voter ID, the court would have. Uh, I have no doubt found a way to say that the amendment process was totally legitimate. But uh, I think that it is the concern that the people will do something at political odds with the ruling cadre right now that is what accounts for how onerous it is. You know, a group proposing medical marijuana would have to take great pause whether it is worth the effort, given how how difficult the process is, and given that it would have at most a two-year shelf life, and therefore, by the time it got up and running, the legislature could close it back down. The cost, it says, so that the initiative will not result in a reduction in state funds available for expenditure by the legislature. Revisions about funds are um, very difficult to understand. It says it has to identify the amount of source of revenue required to implement it. And it, but it also says it, and to identify the specific funding source so that it won't reduce state funds available to the legislature. So it can't really cost money. It can 
generate money, for example, through fees, but then there's, you know, some language kind of that's at, at war with even that idea. Was there anything else when reading through this that jumped out to you as a strange or hard to parse out or just worthy of note, anything like that? Just how deeply cynical it seemed to me, how deeply cynical of sharing power. Hard to understand what the purpose of this is if it's not essentially a placebo. If it's not so legislators can say, well, we tried to get an initiative process, and then the Democrats or illegal immigrants or somebody stopped everything in the struck or some other boogeyman. Like, I don't understand why someone would write such an ineffectual law except as political cover for an explanation for why we don't have something more effective in place. The citizens initiative process was popular among the voters, as best we can tell. It's an issue that gets raised frequently, and this allows a show, a pretextual showing that the legislature is, is trying to implement something. Matt Steffi is a professor of law at the Mississippi College School of Law. Coming up, many conservative lawmakers want to cut taxes again this year, but research shows it could hurt the state's future. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. From children's education to gripping drama, documentaries to comedy, MPB Television brings the world to Mississippi. With local stories, cooking, health, and music, MPB Television takes Mississippi to the world. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A new report from the Center for Budget and Policy Priorities finds cutting taxes could diminish a state's ability to fund essential programs during a time where budgets are artificially inflated. The nonprofit organization based in Washington, D.C., finds many states across the nation are primed to cut income taxes this year, including here in Mississippi. Governor Tate Reeves has already called on the legislature to eliminate income taxes this session, and there are already laws decreasing taxes year over year. Our Kobe Vance speaks with Wesley Thorpe, Senior Advisor for State Tax Policy at the agency. He says Mississippi is one of many states with inflated budgets because they are sitting on unspent federal coronavirus relief dollars. States across the country have been on a verifiable tax-cutting spree for the past three years. Coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic, and the subsequent economic recovery. Um, There are 26 states, all told, um, from 2021 to 2023, uh, that cut either their personal or corporate income tax rates. Um, And in many states, they cut both of those, and in many states, they cut them multiple times. Overwhelmingly, these income tax cuts, as they typically do in states, uh, are going to provide an outsized benefit to richer taxpayers who are already doing very well. Income tax cuts provide the most benefit to taxpayers with the most income uh, is is really how it works, whereas lower and moderate income people really see a much more paltry, paltry gain from that policy choice. Importantly, what we really dig into and, and unpack in this analysis is what the trade-off of those tax cuts are going to be. And so specifically, uh, what is going to be the price tag, the cost in lost revenue that accrues to states over time. We find that over the next five years nationwide, those tax-cutting states are going to collect about $111 billion less 
than they would have uh, had states not enacted those cuts. Um, to try to put that number in perspective, in percentage terms, that's about more than a third of what states spend each year on their colleges and universities. Um, so those are really going to be a steep ongoing costs for states. By 2028, which is the last year we look at uh, project out to in the report, states will be collecting nearly $30 billion a year less ongoing into the future than they otherwise would have. And Mississippi is one of the states on that list, as, as you and, and many listeners will likely know, um, having enacted pretty large and, and costly not as large as some of the most extreme states, but still very noteworthy income tax cut in 2022. Yeah, we did eliminate the 4% tax bracket. You've been speaking as if these tax cuts are an expenditure. You're talking about costs. Uh, how do you think thinking of it that way helps put into perspective what lawmakers are giving up when they do cut taxes? I think you really kind of hit the nail on the head a bit in shining a light on what people are giving up, what uh, regular voters and communities are giving up and, and really trading off in exchange for um, what can be, a, I agree, an intuitive appeal of tax cuts when, when you look at them in the abstract or at first glance. The bottom line is that every dollar uh, that states choose not to collect in broad-based tax revenue uh, is a dollar that they're not going to have on hand, uh, whether it's today or tomorrow to support really critical things that people are either already relying on in their daily lives, um, things like quality K-12 education uh, for their children, things like being able to sort of access affordable health care or child care, uh, to be able to go to a local senior center, uh, to be able to just rely on reliable infrastructure, um, roads that get paved on some sort of regular schedule, uh, decent water quality. And so in terms of people's just day-to-day -day lives and well-being and an ability to access economic opportunity and try to strive for a better life. Taxes certainly matter. Um, I, I care about my tax bill in the way that, that anybody else does, but I also uh, really deeply care about being able to have access to a, a suite of things that allow me to have economic opportunity and a high quality of life. And those, those dollars that tax uh, adequate tax policies drive are a big part of how states and localities are able to provide uh, those concrete things that are so important to, to people's success. Something that is interesting is that a lot of these states really amped up this issue around the time of the pandemic. Uh, do you think that the pandemic itself or was it the coronavirus relief dollars that came from the federal government played a major role in this movement? They certainly did. There's a couple of ways to think about this. First is that this wave of income tax cuts that we've seen over the past three years is not completely unprecedented. Um, every decade or two, there's a bit of a, a trend, if you will, of based on various sorts of economic factors, states sort of trying to compete against each other, if you will. Um, you, you'll see a wide swath of tax cuts. We saw this during the 1990s, when during kind of an economic boom time, more than half of states cut their income tax rates. After the Great Recession, uh, there were a lot of states under kind of the, the guise of trying to boost their economies that enacted deep income tax cuts, even though that we know that that's not a proven or effective economic development strategy on the state level. And what we have seen over the past few years with this most recent wave is the circumstance that presented itself is due to 
um, the federal government's really historic response to COVID-19 in terms of uh, strong economic relief and a lot of uh, flexible fiscal aid, so a lot of sort of flexible dollars that were sent to states and localities that in Mississippi, as in you know, most, if not frankly, all, almost all states, you know, there were really these fairly sizable surpluses where states were sitting on excess revenue, essentially, uh, again, from that strong federal response, as well as an increasingly strong economic recovery that had helped to spark. In a lot of states, what policymakers have done is use what were temporary uh, dollars, temporary surpluses coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic and recovery to enact permanent cuts in their state revenue systems. And Mississippi is, is one of those states where that temporary economic boost and those temporary federal dollars are almost gone. They've almost worked their way through the system. But those income tax cuts that were enacted, in part under the guise of those surpluses, those are ongoing costs that, that Mississippi will be seeing indefinitely unless there's some uh, legislative change in the future. Wesley Tharp is Senior Advisor for State Tax Policy at the Center on Budget and Policy Priorities. Wesley, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, it was my pleasure. Next, a new book tells the story of Oxford, Mississippi, and the unique people who helped shape it. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. We try to make it easy for you to listen to MPB Think Radio with all the useful information you hear on our local programs, including car repair, your health, personal finance, technology, and more. You can listen on the radio in your car or at home, using your smart speaker or smartphone, or listening online. And coming soon, an exciting new way to access our local programs. MPB Think Radio, helping you lead a better life. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Desiree Frazier. A new book tells the story of Oxford, Mississippi, and the unique people who helped shape it. The novel is called Southern Lights, Oxford, Mississippi. It tells a story of the college town spanning from the Civil War to Christmas Eve in 1960. Eileen St. Lauren is a journalist and writer raised in Hattiesburg, Mississippi, now living in North Carolina. She says the story began as a screenplay she wrote when she was in college and is now adapted to this fictional novel. It's a story of the blended real and the fantastic that sit in Oxford, near Faulkner's longtime home of Roanoke, which is now, as most people know, located on the property of the University of Mississippi. And the tightness of the setting and the facade of the small-town peacefulness deny these tormented souls who live within the houses of Oxford and along the way peace. The environment there, knowingly and unknowingly, each character is intimidated by the southern light and affected by the southern light. So in addition to William Faulkner, Desiree, being caught up in the plot of the tormented people, there are many other troubled individuals. There's a historic Confederate American Civil War ghost that most people are familiar with. I won't tell you. An imprisoned man-child, an eccentric German caretaker who is a Holocaust survivor, and a tormented old woman. I have to tell you, your <laughs> characters cracked me up. I was like, oh, my goodness, these people are hilarious. And even a couple of times I chuckled aloud. Your descriptions in the book are so vivid. There's this woman named Lucy. I'm not going to give anything away. But yes, the, yes. 
is Lucy. Lucy is is hilarious. I mean, she in complimenting a cat because somebody said something about the cat. She says, "Lifts me up to paradise." Who says that about a cat? Lifts me up to paradise. This is hysterical. How did you come up with characters that were so just hilarious, eclectic? Well, you know, a lot of people ask me that. And you know what? I think honestly from my heart, I was in Lincoln, Nebraska, where it was snow and cold and below negative degrees. I just come from living in Laurel, Mississippi, and I just started college, university. I knew no one. I had no one. I was lonesome, and I entertained myself, I suppose. (laughs) And and I just came up. I have imagination. The character you're talking about, she's the Reverend's wife, Reverend Morty. Yes. Yes. And she she ought to know that Julius Caesar is not a prophet from the Old Testament. And that's what makes it even funnier. That she that that came out of her mouth is like, okay, are you in church when he's talking, you know, and then he's interesting himself. He's got his own ways. But another thing, you have characters in here that are named after prominent people like the cat called King Lear. One of the characters on Eleanor Franklin, she sees Ulysses S. Grant the commander of the Union Army, and Abraham Lincoln. She has visions, yeah. Yes. She actually sees that. And, you know, people that have maybe dementia, you know, they see stuff like that. And, you know, in Oxford, I did research to make sure I learned more about the American Civil War than I had ever known before, even here in this house where I'm at now. I had to have my facts straight, you know, and I said, that was a terrible war, you know. My husband said, Eileen, you didn't know this? I said, well, I didn't know it was as bad as I found out it was, you know. And so when she has these visions, I envisioned myself as her. I take on, I become my characters, you know. So she sees, you know, what's going on in the battle. And, you know, as you as you probably read, it's not very good. It's very bad. And she, right. she has these, you know. Uh, visions of seeing all these things that went on in the cemetery when she goes, you know, to the campus and talks to them. And I pray and I ask God, you know, for to help me to be fair to my characters and to have the right heart for everybody, you know. And when I sit down to write, uh, these people come to me in my imagination, of course, not in the room. <laughs> and I hear their voices in my head, and that's why it's mostly dialogue, because it's like 90% dialogue. You know, you see all this dialogue, and that's what a screenplay is. So I'm hoping, you know, one day my hope and my dream, my calling is to write, but my hope and dream is to have screenplays and, and movies and TV series out of my books. Well, Eileen St. Lauren, we appreciate you taking the time to speak with us about your work. Certainly the most recent book, Southern Light, Oxford, Mississippi. Before that, My Neighbors, Good Life, Mississippi. And Good Life, Mississippi was the first one. And just to note before we go, I mean, you mentioned places like Meridian, Piney Woods, Neshoba County Fairgrounds, Noxapeter, and you just bring it right 
here to Mississippi where people can let their imaginations and their own experiences be a part of what you're writing because a lot of us know these towns, have been to these towns, know people that live in these places. We thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, God bless you. And always remember, I love Mississippi. That's where I'm from. And Mississippi is me and I'm Mississippi. And no matter where I am, I'm never ashamed of Mississippi. I love my Mississippi. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.